Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Sports Forum podcast. I am Ken Reed, and I am your host. At Sports Forum, we try to take a fairly deep dive on a variety of sports issues. I'm also sports policy director for League of Fans, a sports reform project founded by Ralph Nader. Our mission at League of Fans is to fight for the principles of justice, fair play, equal opportunity, civil rights, safety, and civic responsibility in the world of sports. Yes, it's a tall order, but worth the fight. You can find some of our work at leagueoffans.org. Sports Forum is an ongoing discussion on a variety of topics, many of them public policy related. For the most part, we'll be talking about issues beyond the games themselves. You won't hear any talk about who this year's Super Bowl favorites are, which NBA coaches should be fired, or what trades certain Major League Baseball teams should make. Those can certainly be fun topics, but there are plenty of outlets for those types of discussions out there. During each episode of Sports Forum, we'll be examining a single sports issue, and we'll be doing it with a guest who has expertise on the topic at hand. The issues we talk about will range from brain trauma and concussions to Title IX and equal opportunity, and many in between. Our guests will come from all over the country and sometimes beyond and have a variety of sports-related backgrounds. So with that, let's get this episode started. Okay, here we go. Another Sports Forum podcast. My guest today is Dr. David Ridpath. He's an associate professor of sports business at Ohio University in the College of Business. Dr. Ridpath has several years of practical experience in the sports industry and teaches classes in several relevant areas with a focus on governance, ethics, leadership, and intercollegiate athletics. A big area of his research is in intercollegiate athletics. He's also the past president of the Drake Group, which is a group of academics primarily with the mission of defending academic integrity in higher education from the corrosive aspects of commercialized college sports. And there's certainly a lot of those aspects. Welcome, Dave. Ken, thank you for having me on. Why don't you, I'm guessing most of our listeners probably aren't that familiar with the Drake Group. If you could just give a quick background on how that started and what your current goals are for that group. Sure, Ken. Um, Most people, when they hear, you know, the Drake Group, they wonder, well, why that name? And so I probably should first start to say that it was the provost at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, a guy by the name of John Erickson, who uh, just in 1999 said he was fed up and wanted to figure out a way to corral this uh, out of control college athletics enterprise that was really eroding educational primacy in higher education. And so he sponsored a meeting that was a come one, come all meeting. And uh, many people showed up even more, even pro NCAA people showed up to that first meeting. And it really morphed into a group of primarily faculty and staff and and other concerned individuals that um, wanted to do something primarily about academic integrity uh, in intercollegiate athletics, but also become a reform group. And it's uh, been a really interesting ride. I've been with it since 2002, so I was not involved in it when it first started. And and honestly, Ken, I was 
I was a jaded college athletic supporter back in 1999. I remember hearing about the Drake group and thinking that it was just a bunch of crazy professors who knew nothing about college athletics. And of course, I was about ready to learn the hard way myself uh, that college athletics is not what we see or what we're going to see this weekend during the final four most go pro and something other than sports and it's about education and you know you know the drill ken and and um i learned that later and it was really the drake group that provided me a lifeline you know not only for like people that's that really felt like i did but maybe even before was a huge supporter of intercollegiate athletics and the system that we that we had and, and certainly still do have and it's really morphed into a very powerful reform group uh, over the years. Uh, we've gotten much more organized. Uh, our membership has, has fluctuated, um, you know, over the years. But, uh, you know, we have a few hundred people who are interested in intercollegiate athletics reform. And, and one person who took note of us about 10 or 12 years ago was, was Ralph Nader, of course, your, your colleague. And uh, he even mentioned us on, on ESPN. And we got more website hits after that than I think we ever had, even up to the present day. But I would just urge the uh, listeners, if they are interested in the Drake Group, just to go to our website, which is www, one word, the Drake Group, like drakeuniversity.org, and check us out. And we're very involved in all the uh, intercollegiate athletic reform efforts uh, that are going on today. Yeah, and I'll just throw out that my limited involvement with you guys has been terrific, and everyone I've met in the Drake Group actually are sports lovers and just want college sport to be a lot better than it is currently and get back to the focus on academics that it was initially intended for. But I think people think of college sports reformers as anti-sports and that's de definitely not the case. Uh, there's several former athletes in the group and it's not a uh, anti-sports group at all. It's just the abuses that come with commercialization and professionalization in, in the way it's set up today. No, you're correct, Ken. And I think, you know, you covered it very eloquently in your book and I loved it was, you know, we are the only country in the world that is doing this. Meaning we're the only country in the world that has the bulk of our elite sport development grounded in the education system. And by doing that, not just at the intercollegiate level but certainly it trickles down to primary and secondary levels of education that it is, I believe in many ways, hurt our country overall because it's more of a race to the top, even at the lower levels. And that's why our, our youth sports complex is the way it is, that it's about winning. It's about finding the best players. And it's not about the sound mind and body and participation that it was originally intended for. Um, again, I've written about this extensively myself, but I do think as a country, we need to look at how we do sports overall. And certainly intercollegiate athletics being essentially what was our first sports property other than, than baseball, it really is the, I think, the catalyst for change. And we have to come to some decisions, Ken, on, you know, can this enterprise sustain itself at a high commercial level within the academic enterprise? And I certainly believe that it cannot, and we need to change the paradigm. And I think that, I think most people can, can get to the baseline, as I always say, that what we're doing now 
is not working. And then I think we can come up with several really, really interesting and, and great ideas on how to run sports in America at all levels. Uh, and, and certainly it's something you've talked about. And I know we're in agreement of it, of, of having a national sports policy and having a national sports ministry like every other country in the world does. Uh, you know, I think it's almost like the metric system here. We do things so backwards with the way we, we have our met weights and measures. You know, the metric system is, is truly a lot easier and a lot more functional. And maybe we should think about it um, in, in sports and not be so stubborn. And, and I agree, Ken, I mean, I am, my athletic career is rather checkered in, in many ways, but you know, I'm a former division one wrestling coach. And um, I certainly, um, you know, I competed at a pretty high level in the military uh, in wrestling and played sports my whole life. I am not anti-sports, Ken, I am, I am watch college athletics, but I know what I'm watching. And it's not this utopian educational, enterprise where athletes are, are doing this as a, as a vocation. Um, and I certainly support my students, uh, you know, who play on our teams here at Ohio University. I'm certainly not as passionate about it as I used to be, Ken, but um, most people that want to reform college athletics are ones that actually love it and want it to be run in the proper way. Right. One of the things that's in the news these days is the uh, battle over NILs for athletes, their names, images, and likenesses, and that's actually even a case in the Supreme Court now. What are your thoughts on NILs and the ways that make the most sense for athletes, especially in the big time sports of men's basketball and football, to get a bigger pot or bigger piece of the pie of the product they're actually creating? Well, apps number one, I believe that you know, all students, and that includes athletes, have the right, the fundamental right to their own name, image, and likeness. And there are several, I guess you could say, quote unquote, normal students that make a lot of money. Um, even my daughter, when she was here at Ohio University, uh, won money in singing contests. You know, she was able to, you know, profit off that. And we, we had a social media influencer here at Ohio University who's become quite famous his name was Logan Paul, and he was a walk-on on our football team. And he's most famous now because he's going to be fighting Floyd Mayweather in celebrity boxing here soon. But he was a multimillionaire as a freshman in college because of his social media uh, influencing. And so, you know, all athletes have value, Ken. Some have more, some have less. This just isn't about the big-time athletes. In fact, some of your, I always say the backup punter at Ohio State has value, because he could go back to his high school and run a camp. Uh, gosh, Ken, I could still probably go back to Manitou Springs High School and get a few people to show up for a wrestling camp even, right? And we have to look at it as it is a civil rights issue. This isn't about pay for play, which I know is a whole nother argument. This is about a fundamental civil right that we all have. And that's the ability to profit off our own name, image, and likeness. I don't see it affecting the enterprise of college athletics, people are still going to watch. I don't see it affecting recruiting because it's just something that's added to the recruiting mix, right? You still can only offer the value of a scholarship during recruiting, but we know there's lots of other intangible things out there, whether it's facilities, coaches, you know, academic centers, all these things that are being built in the intercollegiate athletics arms race. NAL opportunities are just another thing that are thrown in the mix. And there might be better NIL opportunities at some place than another place, but there might be a better coach at one place than another place. The best schools are gonna remain the best schools. Ohio State will still be Ohio State. Uh, our alma mater will still be 
Colorado State, right? So there's just not going to be much different in my difference in my view. And I just go back to Ken that Taylor Branch says it the best, the noted historian. And he said this um, on the movie, uh, it was called Schooled, The Price of College Sports. I, I thought he said it's so great. So I repeat this all the time. When we talk about college athletes, you deal first with their rights. That's the fundamental start. Everything else is an adjustment. We will adjust. People love to watch the games. They don't care. And that stadium that's near me here in Ohio, uh, 70 miles up the road, Ohio Stadium, will be full regardless. Yeah, and I think a, a good example of we will adjust is the Olympics. I mean, for years, it was supposedly amateur athletics, uh, except for maybe the Soviet Army basketball team. But we adopted the Olympic model where all these athletes could get endorsements and such. And no one, there was cries back then that the Olympics would lose its popularity, that it wouldn't be followed as much if professional athletes could participate. And it's just, it's been just the opposite. The popularity has never been greater. And it allows athletes of all levels from shot putters to the basketball team to capitalize on their NILs. Absolutely. And I'm of the belief, Ken, that you know, um, there are certainly complications with paying college athletes as employees when you bring in Title IX and other things, but it's not impossible. But I do think we need to walk before we run, and NILs is the perfect solution. And maybe we never get to a point of paying college athletes, whether they should be or not. I try not to argue that right now because I think NILs is really the, the uh, absolute way to go. But the Olympics is a salient point. And uh, honestly, I bring up paying college athletes because I don't think fans care. Ken, I mean, you're you're the league of fans. That's the organization you you recommend you you represent. I just think fans want to watch the games, and I don't think they care if college athletes are paid. They're certainly not going to care if they're making money off their own name, image, and likeness. Yeah, it's no different than the student that's on a music scholarship that does a, a gig down at the corner bar on Saturday night. It doesn't prevent that student from making some money on the side. And it just, like you said, Taylor Branch said it perfectly. It starts with the rights and then we go from there. And yeah, and that should trump everything. And I think, um, you know, when you look at, um, when you look at the, uh, you know, the athletes, you know, themselves that, and, and what administrators try to say and say, well, if we allow name image and likeness, it's going to hurt other sports because of sponsorship displacement or, or they trot out Title IX when it's convenient, or they try to say competitive equity. And candidly, competitive equity doesn't exist. No, uh, it doesn't right, exist now. Has. Yeah, <laughs> ever has. And this and this isn't going to change anything. Again, the best schools will be the best schools. And um, to trot out Title IX and say, oh my gosh, we're going to have to drop women's sports if we pay NILs is just a sleight of hand and, and candidly offensive that they would use something that they have fought so hard against, as we saw in Living Color just a couple of weeks ago with how the women's basketball final four participants were being, or the tournament participants were being treated, um, tend to, to trot it out as their advantage, as Seth Waxman even did in the Supreme Court case, uh, was pretty disappointing. How do you think this will end up with NILs? Because we have several states, California, Colorado, and others that have already passed uh, legislation, uh, legislation allowing students to uh, profit off their own NILs. And then now we got this federal movement going on. How do you think it plays out? 
Well, I think ultimately it's going to be a federal solution. And there, there's some good solutions out there. I'm a little biased. I think the Drake Group has a really good plan. And we have certainly been working with uh, several congressional offices on the House and Senate side. And pre-pandemic, we had made several visits to Washington, D.C., uh, had the privilege of meeting with Senator Chris Murphy, who's been a leader in uh, you know, college athlete rights. So um, I think that there's some ways to do this. Uh, I think that it needs to be out of the hands completely of the NCAA. Um, certainly a third party can certainly have oversight and, and ensure that it's fair market value and all those other things that you hear. But I don't think a university compliance office, athletic compliance office should have anything to do with this. It should be a transaction that the athlete makes with um, whatever it might be, whether it's a camp clinic, sponsorship, whatever it may be. And, you know, if, if Michael Jordan has paid $50,000 for one thing, well then, you know, okay, that's a, that's a standard that we have. We're probably, we probably shouldn't play, pay the starting quarterback at Texas a half million, right? You know, so you have some standards there that, that I think can be managed. Uh, but I ultimately think, Ken, that it will be a national standard. We may get to July 1, and there may be some people freaking out as some states come forward. Um, and I think there's going to be such a push uh, for Congress to do a national standard. And, and I think that that, candidly, I think it's the way to go. I know a lot of people don't like Congress or the Supreme Court, candidly, getting involved in intercollegiate athletics issues. But it's where we are. And the NCAA has shown no ability to manage or govern itself. And exactly. so, and the NCAA uh, trusting them to do the right thing is just silly because it seems like their entire purpose is to keep college sports revenues for their members and away from the athletes at all costs that create the product. So you don't want them <laughs> making the rules in this case. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's their whole purpose and they certainly need to be as far away from it if not completely uninvolved. And, and I think you bring up a really good point in that, um, you know, these are college students and call them college athletes. I don't use the term student athlete, so I'll say that now, but um, we have to ask ourselves, I think it's a very simple thing. One, you deal with their rights, as Taylor Branch said, but then you ask yourself, are they students or are they employees? And they can't be both. <laughs> There's no middle ground here. There's no carve out. And so if they're students, they deserve all rights and responsibilities that all students have. If they're employees, then they need to be able to unionize, collectively bargain. And then if, if schools want to restrict transferring, have non-compete clauses, pay them, all those other things, we can do that too, but I don't think they want to go that route. So we need to go the route of let's treat them as college students and let them have NAL rights, let them have transfer freedom. And um, I bet you the enterprise is just going to chug along just fine. Yeah, let's jump back to the start of the NCAA now, which... Uh upon my readings of history, the NCAA or its predecessor was formed for the safety and protection of athletes, uh, primarily after several deaths from football back in the day. And, and if their number one purpose is protection and safety and the health of the athletes, I think they've really failed on that end too. We got the concussion issue where the NCAA didn't do anything for a long time. They finally issue some guidelines, but no exact rules. And they leave this to the various universities who can do a lot or might not do anything. We've had this past year with the COVID pandemic uh, where they kind of were just, the NCAA was just on the sidelines and university presidents were calling athletes back to campus when no other students were back on campus. 
it just seems like uh, NCAA has many failures, but one of the biggest is in their original charter of protecting the health and safety of the athletes themselves. Yeah, and that's especially become so acute, you know, during the, the COVID pandemic. I mean, that's why, and I think most of your listeners probably know this, but that's why the NCAA started, as you mentioned, it was to, you know, reduce injuries in football and get uniform rules. And, you know, that was a, I think everyone would agree, a benevolent and uh, probably good outcome. But they've, the NCAA has gotten so far away from that because, as you said, it's about revenue. It's about protecting that revenue for the members and protecting an outdated and, and outmoded concept of, of amateurism. And uh, the health and safety of the athletes really doesn't matter. And I think we saw that within uh, what was going on in, in COVID. And, and really, it was the conference commissioners controlling things. And uh, Mark Emmert was on the sidelines instead of getting the presidents together and realizing Mark Emmert has no real power. He has no real authority, but he is certainly should be leading the presidents to build consensus. And he wasn't doing that. And then it became a hodgepodge of conferences saying they were in, they were out. Um, you know, it was almost almost laughable. And I, I think of some of those athletic directors, Jack Schwarbeck at Notre, Notre Dame. If we don't have kids on campus, we will not have sports. It goes against our values. And uh, it was kind of like Colonel Gaddafi, you know, cross this line, you die, cross this. They, they went back on that quicker than you could, could repeat the sentence. And it's just really sad. And for me, Ken, I'm of the opinion that, you know what, tell me the truth, shoot me straight. <laughs> we all know what's going on. Don't try to cover it up, right? And then, so then the athletic directors and commissioners said, well, the athletes want to play. And that might be the case, but you said your values where if students aren't on campus, we're not going to have kids on campus because it's dangerous because of COVID. And look, they've gone so far away from that mission, Ken, that, it, that it's really laughable. I mean, I'm, I'm to the point that, you know, we need to bust up the NCAA like any of the old monopolies. And maybe we have several different intercollegiate athletic governing bodies. Yeah, I think it was pretty clear when the Pac-12 and Big Ten and everyone started playing football again that the media revenue from those TV rights deals was more important than any thoughts about the safety of the athletes themselves. Yeah, and of course they they brought out to say, well, we've got to we've got to do this to save women's sports and save other sports while paying their coaches millions of dollars instead of having a market correction in, in expenses. And I realize you're losing money, you know, in some ways because of COVID, but that was another, you know, nice little convenient excuse. Well, now we have to play. But then it brings up the other moral and ethical issue is, is okay, so we should have a primary a sport primarily performed by African-American males, support sports of primarily white individuals who likely can afford to go to college <laughs> mm -hmm. and pay for their sport. That's a whole nother moral dilemma that we have. Oh, yeah. And I, I, it always amuses me when that argument comes up about having to support the minor sports and the women's sports. That's why this needs to take place. But you look at division three and division two programs, almost across the board, they offer more athletic teams than the FBS division one big time schools. Uh, you know, you mentioned our alma mater, Colorado State, they, they barely meet the bare minimum. Um, but you go to a division three schools and they have sometimes twice as many sports offered without the revenue of the big time sports in division one and all the all the money that's necessary to compete with fancy new locker facilities and etc 
it's just all eaten up by football and men's basketball in some cases women's basketball and other sports uh, baseball or wherever they're especially but it has nothing to do with how many sports you can offer because the division two and division three teams are doing just fine without all that tv revenue money no absolutely and i think you know um it goes back to something that that you and Ralph Nader suggested years ago that we support in the Drake group is need-based athletic scholarships, right? It's, you know, the scholarship bill is, is something that is a very big bill. And a lot of people will come back and say, oh my gosh, what about the education? Again, it's need-based. And there are many people on football teams that can get other types of, of, of aid to go to college or basketball teams, whatever it may be. Uh, but the focus on the scholarship and then, of course, the recruiting and the commercial success has driven up costs so much that that's what is causing the issues with, with sports being cut. It's not Title IX. It's, it's interesting, Ken, because Title IX gets blamed for cutting sports, but then it gets blamed for reasons why we have to save them or supported for reasons why we have to save them. And it, it's, just, it's just crazy. And yet, yeah, University of Texas is $200 million budget plus and has, I think, 19 sports. I will give Ohio State credit. They're still maintaining 30 plus like a like a division three program. I don't know how long that's going to go because you look at Stanford, which was a school that supported 30 plus programs. They recently dropped 10 or 12, I think. Um, and it's all trying to chase this holy grail, this winner take all market of, you know, we have to win. And then you have the smaller schools like Colorado State. Um, who think uh, that, you know, if we could be Boise State one year, if we could be George Mason, that's going to somehow be a panacea to the university. And, and research really doesn't back that up. So it's, it's a bad investment in many ways. It would be better to have more teams like a Division three or Division two school. That actually would be better to increase enrollment, again, and to increase the bottom line of the institution. Uh, oftentimes when we cut these sports, we are also cutting sports where kids have to pay at least, I should say college students have to pay, athletes have to pay at least a part of their tuition. And we're cutting that sport saying we're saving money, but we're also hurting the university's bottom line of headcount and tuition dollars. So to me, it's backwards and it, it really is just a sleight of hand. And I agree with you, we should look more at the division two and division three model. Yeah, another thing that's not talked about all that much is the, the cost that regular traditional students have to pay through student fees to subsidize the athletes, which are a small percentage of the overall school. I mean, uh, I think a lot of students don't even realize where a lot of those fees are going. Most don't. And, and Ken, I've done a lot of research in this area. And I know some economists have argued with me because uh, they take the stance of that having an intercollegiate athletics program increases the university's value and profile and brand. And in some cases, that may be true. There's a lot of counter research out there. Uh, but on one hand, there's the school of thought of, you know, if you go to Colorado State and Colorado State has a Division I athletics program, your degree is worth more. And I don't know how true that is, but if that's the case, let's just accept that as, as true. Does that justify a student having to pay student fees really in sometimes in excess of a thousand dollars per year which is that's about what we're paying here at ohio university it's really almost close to 1300 it's much higher than other schools the median is between you know five seven hundred dollars of schools that are not power five although some power five schools still take student fees that are really funding the bulk of athletic department operations 
to the tune of about 50 to 60%. So even in the case of where a school like say Colorado State might say football pays for everything, it doesn't. The students are paying for virtually everything. Certainly that's the case here at Ohio University. And it's almost 90% at a school like Eastern Michigan. And are the students getting that return on investment? And then let's extrapolate that out. Somebody at Eastern Michigan might've paid $6,000 during their enrollment in student fees to athletics. And we know about student debt and student loan debt. You know, somebody, and I'm not saying somebody should have taken out student loans, that was their choice, but extrapolate that out over 20 years. And that student may have never attended an athletic event. Ken, I'm not against an athletic fee, but it needs to be in line with other fees, the old $25 library fee or $25 lab fee. Um, instead of, of having it eight, 900, even $1,500 per year and put that on as a regressive tax when most students and most parents don't know that. So one thing that we've been advocating in the Drake Group is one, not only a capping of student fees, which the state of Virginia has done uh, for athletics, but also having a line item bill so parents can see that. If you want to pay for it, you at least should, you know, or if the school's going to ask for it, you should at least know instead of saying, hey, you've got to pay $1,700 of fees and $1,500 of that may be going to the athletic department. I think a lot of parents may have questions about that. For sure. Let's, let's hop back to academic integrity, which is the main purpose of the Drake Group, which you were president of for quite a while. Let's just talk about FBS or the big time power five conferences, however you want to describe them, but especially in the high revenue sports like football and men's basketball, is there anything truly educational about these professionalized commercialized college sports? I know there are certainly exceptions and we hear about them. The, the football player that, you know, is getting straight A's in chemistry despite putting in 60, 70 hours on their sport. And those are inspiring stories because they are working their tail off. But you also hear plenty of the old stories about the basket weaving classes. There's, um, we just saw Roy Williams retire at UNC and they had their academic scandal that tainted their program. W what can we do to get true students playing these sports and, and clean up some of these fake paper classes? Well, I think, Ken, you're, you're right. It's hard to call it educational at so many levels. And again, that even trickles down to sports beyond football, men's basketball, and even, even in some ways trickles down to Division II and Division III because the main outcome that is desired for coaches is you must win, right? And certainly at the Division I high commercialized level, that coaches are hired and fired on two things, winning or losing. You know, if, if Nick Saban was losing but graduated 100% of his uh, – a football team and they went on to become great productive citizens and things outside of sports, uh, you know, he would be fired tomorrow. And that's really the, that's really the sad reality. So education is not the priority. And what we've asked for in the Drake group is really some simple things to make education the priority. And I'll just give you a few of them. Again, they're detailed on our website, but the big one is, is combating the original sin of college athletics. And that is bringing in underprepared, and I never say dumb or that anyone should not be admitted to college. Universities, and we say this in the Drake group, universities have the right to admit whomever they want. But if you're going to admit an athlete 
who is more than one standard deviation below the academic profile of the incoming class. So let's use North Carolina, as you mentioned, as an example. Public Ivy, I think the average, uh, just average incoming SAT score is about 1400. You know, 1600 is the max. And I think the uh, ACT score is 30 or above. Um, and you bring in an athlete who is academically un underprepared, maybe a very talented athlete as a freshman who maybe got a 15 ACT. And you're expecting them to compete academically at a school where they cannot compete academically without proper remediation. So we, we don't ask for a wholesale freshman and eligibility, Ken, although I think that there is some merits to that. In the Drake group, we say that if an athlete, you recruit them and they are more than one standard deviation below the academic profile, that they have to be intensely, intensively remediated for a year with limited athletic activity, certainly no games and, and no more than 10 hours a week of athletic activity uh, that is supervised or part of the athletic department until they can get up to a level they can academically compete. And what's funny about that is Seth Greenberg, who you know, uh, one of the old basketball coaches, he got in an argument with me on Twitter saying, one, he said that we were calling athletes dumb. That's not what we're doing. We want to give them a chance to succeed academically. And he felt that it was wrong to limit their athletic opportunities. And I said, well, Seth, what do you do if you have an athlete who's maybe not quite up to snuff, you know, to play immediately or needs a little more seasoning? He's like, oh, we redshirt them. Ding, ding, ding. Here's what we're doing. Uh, it is not what the NCAA calls an academic redshirt. It is if you recruit them, you have an obligation to at least give them the opportunity to be lifted up to a level where they can compete academically, especially when they are tied up 40 to 50 hours a week. And then the other thing that we, that we um, absolutely support, it's one of our core beliefs, to combat academic clustering, meaning something like North Carolina, where you had the bulk of the football team, primarily, sadly, African-American males, and the, almost the entire basketball team for over 20 plus years being enrolled in sham classes or being forced into majors that are more eligibility oriented and not educationally oriented. Because again, you're bringing in a lot of these young men and young women in some cases who are not academically remediated. And so we advocate a form of disclosure, public disclosure, because until institutions are publicly shamed, they typically don't do anything. North Carolina would still be going on today, Ken, if not for Dan Kane's reporting and uncovering this uh, situation. So we advocate a form of disclosure that says, okay, you know, not by name, but what majors are your football, is your football team enrolled in? And if there's 70% of a football team and one certain major, that should raise a red flag. And uh, Texas A&M a few years ago, and, and nothing against this major, but I think it was 70% of their football team was enrolled in poultry science. Um, probably 70% of a football team is not interested in that major. So they're likely being pushed there so they can stay eligible. And nothing against things like sociology. People often bash my major sports management, which I would argue is very rigorous. I know at some schools that it's not, but if we're shoving athletes into these majors, that needs to be exposed. And we wanna give athletes a chance in a college education. And the other thing, Ken, I'll leave you with, again, there's a few other points, but I'd say the third main thing that we're pushing is just a change in the paradigm of time demands, an absolute 25 hour a week um, commitment to athletics. And that includes, because the NCAA has a lot of ancillary things that don't count in their 20 hours a week. Um, and the other thing is, Ken, is eliminating 
non-traditional seasons. Football has become a year-round sport now, and there is no real reason for spring football, um, fall seasons for baseball, other things. Again, if these are college students, and uh, and then returning our coaches, many of them to the classroom. John Wooden taught classes. Ralph Miller taught classes. Um, we don't need to have these athletes essentially competing year-round when they are college students. And those are really three things that we want to do and I think are very achievable and doable uh, to return academic primacy to intercollegiate athletics. Yeah, and it, it, you mentioned the year-round commitment now. It's not just football and basketball, but uh, I was reading a story recently about a local soccer player at a lower division one level that was forced to stay on campus during the summer to continue soccer workouts. Uh, so it's it's a year round commitment and, and that this whole one, one and done thing has made it even worse. I mean, when you go to a school like Kentucky for basketball or whatever, and you're gonna jump to the pros in one year, you really only go have to go to school that first semester. Right, and you only have to pass six hours, Ken. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, how, and then and then you don't have to go to class once the second semester starts, right? right, you're, right. you're already eligible, and that's an, another thing. I'll to give you a fourth thing. Another thing that we do advocate is we don't advocate two semester sports anymore. They should not a sport should be contained into one semester. So we using college basketball as an example started in January and play play your final four in you know in April. Um, same thing with, you know, college baseball. And I, you know, certainly with college baseball, I suppose it could certainly go into the summer a little bit. Um, but, you know, keep the sports contained within one semester so that at the very least the athletes have not a complete, you know, sports free semester, but a very low, low impact with regards to organized sports activities in at least one other semester of enrollment. Let's uh, hop outside of college athletes, uh, a little athletics. Um, this is an issue that transcends pro sports, college sports, and high school sports. I wrote about it this morning, but I was shocked to read that there's still 1,900 schools in this country, high schools, that have Native American mascots and nicknames. And I, I thought we had moved a little further than that. I, I know it took a lot of pulling to get Daniel Snyder to drop his Redskins nickname with the Washington NFL franchise, but I, I figured high schools, educational institutions would be a little more progressive in their thinking when it comes to these mascot names. Um, I know in Colorado here, there's uh, legislation pending to require them to drop their nicknames or pay a $25,000 or mascots $25,000 fine. And I think Maine has actually done that. And there's six other states that are considering something similar. The NCAA put out some kind of vague language back and think it was in 2005, right. pushing schools to drop this. But where do you think we are and how do we make that big leap uh, to eradicate these mascots and nicknames completely? It's probably not a great answer because I think that we just have to keep, keep pushing and exposing. Um, but you do have a large ignorant base out there that thinks things like this are not offensive, but they would be completely offended, um, you know, if it was uh, an African American, uh, you know, racial slur, or if it was a female slur. Um, and, you know, I, I myself, and you know, Ken, growing up in Colorado, grew up around, you know, many, uh, many Native Americans, and growing up, I didn't think it was offensive, but I needed to be educated on that. So I just think, Ken, that 
since 2005 and obviously was a huge moment for Washington to drop their, their name. Uh, I think with the NCAA, it wasn't far reaching enough in the sense that um, they said that schools had to change it. However, if you got approval of the tribe, you could still use the name. And I know that there was some controversy with Florida State because there's two Seminole tribes. There's one in Oklahoma and there's one in Florida. And if I understand right, I think I'm right on this, that the Oklahoma Seminole tribe did not approve, but the Florida Seminole tribe actually did approve and approve of their you know, caricatures they do at the beginning and the spear ceremony and all those things. But I just think we need to continue to educate and push. And I, I applaud the Colorado legislature for doing something like this to, you know, you just have to really make it tough on these institutions, but high school should know better. Um, and I think that it is an important issue. Um, if people don't believe this, uh, we have to continue to show why it's not appropriate um, to have Native American nicknames. And I think this can, I guess, to look on the bright side is look where we are since, you know, the turn of the century. We've really made some progress, but there's miles to go. Yeah, I agree. I don't want to discount the progress that's been made, but it just seems to me it was just I could see it more being a challenge with pro sports teams who are selling merchandise and like the Cleveland Indians and Redskins being tougher for them to change than it would be a high school that's an educational institution and you would think would be against this kind of stuff. Uh, I, one of the quotes that caught me from the Senate confirmation or the Senate committee hearing in Colorado when they were discussing this issue was a, a seventh grader of Lakota descent named Brody Seawalker from the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe testified, I'm not anyone's mascot and I'm not an animal, a savage or anyone's good luck charm. I am a human and a proud Lakota who comes from a long line of ancestors that fought so very hard so that I could be standing here before you today. That's a seventh grader. And that I think was a pretty powerful statement. Wow, wow. That is, I mean, I think that says it all. All right, well, I, uh, I wanted to end with uh, the, the three areas that I think that we need to address constantly in college athletics. And we probably talked about all these at one point, but I think there's three areas to get college sports where they need to be and where we could all feel comfortable with them. One is enhanced academic integrity, two, economic and social justice for the athletes themselves. And then three, the ethical and safe treatment of college athletes. And the one that pops in my mind there is concussions. I, some of the stories I've read about these athletes in college that have had concussions and they've you know, not been diagnosed properly, they've had seven concussions, they've been put right back into the games too quickly. The NCAA, once again, uh, has not really done much. They've offered some guidelines, but they want to avoid any legal issues. And so they've kind of just dropped this on the schools themselves. And so within conferences, there's different ways of approaching uh, brain trauma, uh, even within the same schools, within different sports programs, they uh, approach it differently. Do you have any thoughts on what we can do in terms of the, the brain trauma issue in sports? Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think the three areas you bring up are very important. And the, the thing with the with the brain trauma issue is there's many things that I think that that you've talked about in the past, too, is just starting from the youth level. We don't have like Europe does where I spent a lot of time is we don't have certified coaches training in America. 
you know, you have a bunch of dads and moms coaching, you know, football, and uh, we need to really one close that loop. And I think we need to have age appropriate sports too. And certainly football is one that I think we need to really look at, um, you know, maybe not allowing full contact football nationwide until the age of 14 or 16, uh, maybe even older. I know Ben and Amalu from, you know, the fame, the, the Will Smith movie, who Will Smith played said that, you know, you, nobody should play full contact football until they're a legal adult, the age of 18 because then they can make their own decisions, but they also need to be informed of the risk. And that's where the NFL is not informing people of the risk. So getting to the NFL and college athletics, again, Ken, it goes back to what we talked about, right? It's about the revenue. It's about protecting the revenue. It's about making that money. And, and, and some people just want to be entertained. Um, specifically to my area of college athletics, and I had experience in this, um, is we have a real issue of these celebrity coaches and imagine yourself being a $40,000 a year athletic trainer and you tell Nick Saban that, you know, uh, Ken Reed, our all quarterback, can't play. I think he has a concussion. We're going to evaluate him. And if Nick Saban says, no, he's playing, sadly, that's what's been happening. The coaches have had control even over medical decisions over team doctors and certainly um, over athletic trainers who are some of the most, you know, underpaid and underappreciated people I've been around. And I, I supervised athletic training when I last worked at Marshall in my last athletic job. And I took it upon myself to, you know, me, Ken, I'm not one to be intimidated. I took it upon myself to actually back up the doctors and the athletic trainers and tell the coach that they have unquestioned authority. I don't even care if they say he or she can't play because of a hangnail. Whether you think they can play or not doesn't matter. Now, the NCAA has come out and said, guidance-wise, that athletic trainers and medical professionals have unquestioned authority, but we still have a major issue of where athletic trainers, even in employment charts and athletic departments, fall under the purview of the head coach. And if you're answering to them and that person has the hiring and firing of you um, in his or her palm, uh, it can be pretty difficult to make the right decision. And that's why I've, I've advocated, Ken, that sports medicine, certainly other things like academic support, those things need to be external to the athletic department and have no pay, no authority, nothing coming from the athletic department at all. So that they are working as an auxiliary to the athletic department, which is fine. Um, and, you know, you need great athletic trainers and doctors. We want to keep our athletes, you know, healthy as much as possible. But that when... Dr. Smith says, coach, this player's out for three weeks, and I don't care if you're playing Auburn next week. I don't care if you're playing Wyoming. That's it. And the coach can say nothing about it. We have not gotten to that point, Ken, and we have to get to that point. Great point. Well, I appreciate it. Dr. David Ridpath from Ohio University. This has been very good. I, I think I was sitting here listening to your last comments, and it looks like, seems like every issue we talked about today if you trace it all the way back to the start, it's either win at all costs or profit at all costs, and sometimes both. And those are the two things that are making college athletics much less than what they could be at their best. So I appreciate your time. I appreciate what the Drake Group's doing to clean up college athletics and, and focus on academics like we should be doing at our higher institutions of learning and keep up the good work out there. Thanks so much, Ken, for having me on. I appreciate it.
Thank you for listening to this episode of League of Fans Sports Forum Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. You can follow Sports Forum and get information about episodes on Facebook at Sports Forum Podcast. And be sure to go to LeagueOfFans.org to find our latest work on contemporary sports issues. Remember, anyone can be a sports change agent. If you see something in the world of sports that could be better than it is, get involved. Whether that means with the local youth league or at the national level with a major sports public policy issue, you can make a difference. Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple, once said, The ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. So the next time you see an opportunity to enhance the positives or mitigate the negatives in sports world, go ahead and get a little crazy. Until next time, take care.